Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, so by now our Sermon on the Mount series of of, uh, teachings has plainly revealed to you that Jesus is without doubt the master orator. He is the one who speaks with absolute skill and perfection in his delivery. His cadence, his hyperbole, his humor, all of that is present in the richness of his thought and his determination to convict and encourage those of us who listen. And if you remember so far, he has methodically laid this out for us. The master has opened with the basic character traits of his disciples, and then he has explained the various consequences and blessings that are associated with the disciples' level of commitment. And after doing that, Jesus gives examples of the causes and effects of resistance and submission to his teaching. And basically, he tells you that the heart of the matter is your heart. The disciple's heart is devoted to God the Father above all else. And therefore, none of our prayers, our giving, our sacrifices, or anything else we do should be self-serving, but God-honoring. And now Jesus is really getting to the heart of the matter. He has methodically and majestically taken us deeper and deeper and deeper until now he talks about the thing that he actually talked about more than anything else. Did you know that Jesus taught more about wealth than he talked about any other social issues? He said more things about money and stuff than anything else. Now, that being said, Jesus is really hitting at the heart of the matter because it is really a question of self-determination versus devotion to God, isn't it? When When you believe you need to possess something that God has told you you don't need, and it would be better if you left it alone, then you're in the same camp as Adam and Eve, aren't you? And when you believe that God is withholding something from you and therefore God isn't being entirely honest with you, then you're in the same camp with Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God and gave in to temptation. See, no one wants to serve wealth. Everybody wants wealth to serve them. 
And everyone starts out with the intention of letting their wealth and their stuff do good for the family and the loved ones and the community. Everyone starts out with that vision. But unfortunately, danger lies in that pursuit because it takes very little for us to slip down that slippery slope where it becomes a false god. And if you listen carefully to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seminar, it's all about our false gods. It's all about those things that possess us rather than us possessing them. So in the fact that Jesus has talked about wealth with that same beautiful, gentle persuasion that we become accustomed to, we can hear him not making you feel foolish or weak or broken in some way when he says, do not store up treasure on earth, rather store up treasure in heaven. He's really just giving you a wonderful change of values. He's asking you to use his way of thinking to reinterpret your world. Jesus, the master speaker, is using yet another one of his tools masterfully. He's using the art of juxtaposition. And I got to tell you the truth, I just love being able to use that word in a sentence. And uh, when I say that, what I mean is he has a way of comparing and contrasting ideas with very simple words. For example, when he says that earthly treasure can be be destroyed by moth and rust, he's describing two agents that act in one particular way. And then he goes on to say, but the thief, which is one agent, breaks in and steals. And so a single agent does two things. I mean, I just love the artfulness of his way of speaking. He starts by giving you these really clever word plays. And not to dazzle you, but to keep your brain engaged. Now, if you're a teacher, for example, or if you've been a student for a long time, or you've just been attending church all your life and you've heard some preachers that kept your attention and some who didn't, then you recognize that there are are certain little artful techniques that maintain your engagement in the message. And Jesus is the master And so he gives us these contrasts because our brains immediately start digging in and trying to figure out exactly what he means by that. When he says that the moth and rust will destroy your stuff, he's describing something called entropy. He's describing the very condition that began after the fall of Adam and Eve where they were now going to have to toil and struggle for everything they needed and wanted. And their bodies would wind down and die. That all things would eventually deteriorate to their lowest common denominator. And this is called entropy. Another good word to use to impress your friends. Then he describes this less passive form of destruction, this active form of destruction, where the thief comes to break in and to steal. And so now a single agent doing two things and both are destructive and these are active things that cause us trouble because now we find ourselves victimized by the evil that is in the hearts of some people. And there again is the consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve because now there is 
evil in the world. And there is always this struggle against those who would take what they have not earned, those who would break in and hurt and destroy. And so we see Jesus explaining in a few simple phrases, using this artfully applied juxtaposition to describe the human condition and the nature of sin. And it's not an accident that he does so in his conversation about wealth. And for our purposes today, wealth is not just a discussion of money, it's really a discussion of possessions. It's a discussion of things and stuff, as I like to call it. Now, I do want to make note here that the Bible is very clear that it is wise to put up for a rainy day. It is wise to prepare for seasons of famine. The Bible makes it very clear that good stewards do take care of things. And so the Bible isn't speaking against wisdom and wise preparation. It's not that at all. The Bible speaks plainly in a number of places about how we should do right with our money by our families. And the Apostle Paul says, you know, a good parent leaves an inheritance for their child. And if you're a disciple of Dave Ramsey, and I've been through his classes and taught his classes, so I could tell you that he uses these scriptures extensively to explain why it's biblical to be out of debt and to save for a rainy day with your emergency fund and to prepare an inheritance for your family. And these are all biblical things. The Bible makes that clear. What Jesus opposes is the obscene accumulation of wealth and more money and stuff than any one person could ever make good use of. What Jesus opposes is a false god, a frame of mind where you are possessed by possessing rather than gaining so that you can make the world better by your prosperity and success. So when he says store up treasure in heaven, there's the answer. Because he's saying that you only need to store up as much as you're going to need in order to take care of your family and those around you. But after that, what are you going to do with the excess? And the answer is store up treasure in heaven, which is done by investing in those things in which God has invested. To look around you, and if you've been a part of the, the leadership and the staff, you've heard me say this quite a lot since I've been here. Our goal is to look for where God is at work in our midst and join God in whatever God is doing. It's really easy to succeed in a Christian enterprise if you understand that you will succeed at anything God is already doing that you join God in. And so rather than make up our own plans and then ask God to endorse them, we look for where God is at work and we join God. And he makes us able in ways that we can't even see sometimes to accomplish whatever God has in mind. And in the same way, our wealth and our stuff, when it is more than we need and more than enough, is best applied to those things and those attitudes and those places and those means in which we see God at work. And so, literally, if I may be so bold, he means invest in your church if you see God at work there. Invest in those things in your community that serve the 
stuff that God considers important. And how do we know what God considers important? Well, he sent Jesus to save the lost. While Jesus was in the process of saving those who were lost to God the Father, he also cared deeply about widows and orphans and the poor. He cared deeply about the sick and the lame and those who suffer in their bodies and minds. He relieved the demons or the mental problems that occurred and people around him. Look at everything Jesus did and you'll see what's important to God. And there's where you invest. There's where, as far as I'm concerned, our church will invest its energies as individuals, as teams united to do the vision and mission that God has given us. But it's all meant to be a way of investing in those things in which God is invested in and joining God in what God is doing and therefore storing up treasure in heaven. Did you know the word philanthropy actually means love for mankind? That word is often applied to wealthy people who leave lots of money to institutions and so forth. You know, philanthropists are usually thought of as very wealthy people. Andrew Carnegie leaves a library in every town in the country, for example. And that's all wonderful and and good. But philanthropy is not limited to those with whom there is a great deal of excess money and stuff. Philanthropy if it means love for humankind, is really a word that should describe all of us. Since it was Jesus, the greatest philanthropist, who gave all that could be given by the Lord God in order that humankind could be saved for a lifelong, eternal, even, relationship with God the Father. And in that respect, we've been made co-heirs with Jesus and therefore children of the Father. And what that makes us is rich kids who have inherited the greatest of all wealth there ever was. And what that means is is we're called to the same kind of philanthropic life. And so Jesus presents us then with two visions, two ways of imagining the world, and he comes down to this strange sort of shift in the conversation. If we take the words and read through them plain and simple and don't think too much, we just kind of wonder, where, why did he go off on this tangent about what your eye sees and the light and the darkness and all that? Well, let me tell you something. You will no doubt notice over the next several weeks that a great deal of money, billions of dollars, in fact, have been invested in social sciences and in marketing research, and it's all been determined to get your eye to see what it wants. It's all very scientific, and it's kind of amazing, and I watch with a certain fascination, because I'm weird that way, to see if I can spot what they're trying to do in the commercials and in the various advertising. I try to figure out how they're trying to get you to want what they're selling. Well, what Jesus says, when your eye sees light, then it's an indication of something good that's going on inside you. And when Jesus says, when your eye sees darkness, it's an indication of something bad that's going on inside you. It could literally be translated into what we are seeing in the rest of his statements about wealth and stuff. Over the next several weeks, you're going to be bombarded with information in order to get you to think that you want and need a whole lot of things that you probably don't need and probably could live without. 
And so you're confronted with the reality that what your eye sees really does indicate what your body wants. Another way you could put it is, is that your eye sees and it decides whether you want to possess something and control something or someone or your eye sees someone you want to set free and serve. And if we're really, really honest with ourselves, think about this for a minute. When you look at other people and other things, we either see objects that we wish to possess and control, or we see something God made that God wants us to love and care for and set free. Every time we objectify anything, we're falling into the sin that Jesus is describing when he says that you're storing up your treasure on earth. And sometimes it means the way we treat other people, and sometimes it means the way we treat stuff. And believe it or not, even whole church congregations and organizations built around the message of Jesus can get caught up in keeping up with the other churches and so forth and the stuff seeing who can have the best decorations or the best music or the biggest building or, and you know what? My eye just doesn't see that anymore. I just see people that God loves and I love them too. And I see that God wants you to live for love of God. And there's a whole lot of people out there that God loves and he wants you to love them because God loves them. And so he asks you simply through Jesus to decide what you see. Do you see someone poor and ugly and unworthy of your friendship? Do you see someone broken and ashamed because they've made a lot of mistakes and then for whatever reason you dismiss them as someone that's not good enough? Or do you see people created by God, made in the image of God, Why the same people Jesus thought of when he hung on the cross paying the price for my sin and yours. It has been said that we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. So when Jesus tells us that we should stop serving mammon, that is a word that just means stuff of the world, the stuff we put our confidence in apart from God. When Jesus says that, he's basically saying, you are either a slave to the maimon or you're a slave to another. And so to wrap this up, I just want you to hear what he says when he says you cannot serve two masters. You know, when you treat church and religion and your relationship with God like a hobby, well, guess what? You can have a full-time job and several hobbies. If you treat church and religion and your relationship with God like a part-time job, well, if you work your schedule right, you can do two jobs at once. But if you understand that a slave is either owned by one master or another, but cannot be owned by two different masters, then you understand what Jesus is saying. You're either a slave to the master, Jesus, or you're a slave to something else. And what Jesus wants you to do is despise one and love the other. 
So Jesus asks us today, as always, especially as we get ready to give thanks, especially as we get ready to buy things for ourselves and others, let's remember that God would prefer that you take care of people, starting with your own family and those that God has placed in front of you to serve and to do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the times that you have. He does not want you to suffer for want and he doesn't want you to do without in a way that would make you a burden. But at the same time, God does want you to understand how really little it takes to have joy and peace in your life. And it has everything to do with who's the master. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Change our nature even so that you'll be glorified, so that our lives will be devoted to you, the only master. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.